Hello and welcome to the second Oxford Leadership Knowledge Club member interview. Today I'm joined by Stephen Yamshon, who was an alumnus of the 2012 OAMLP. Um, and I'm delighted um, that you've been able to join me, Stephen. So thanks for agreeing. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Oh, it's brilliant. So um, I've been keen to do this um, interview and September has been a very busy month, I think, for everybody. So it's slightly pushed into October. So thank you for your patience. Um, what I think would be really good to start off with is if you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in terms of your work, but everything else that you'd like us to know about. Sure. Um, well, I've been uh, pretty much um, in the um, financial services uh, industry for my whole career. Uh, I began in uh, actually working in forestry in 1977. Uh, when I graduated uh, college in California, I worked for the United States Forest Service, and I worked for them about 10 years uh, before I uh, into private practice um, uh, in finance. Of course, my undergraduate degree is in environmental resources, uh, but I had to pick up an MBA along the way so I could understand uh, finance. And so that's, uh, that's what my career has been, um, I, you know, progressed through the ranks at Bank of America, um, where I became the head portfolio uh, manager, um, you know, and Bank of America is quite a big bank, probably, I think, the third or fourth largest bank in the United States. Uh, and then uh, went on my own, started my own investment management company. Um, and uh, recently, uh, we sold that company and now I'm head of a $13 billion uh, investment firm called BFSG. Wow. Okay, that's pretty impressive. So how did you go from sort of your, in the environment through to that? What was your, you know, when you were thinking about your career, when you were doing your undergraduate uh, program, what, what were you thinking in terms of your future or your career? Well, I've always had a, a, a very strong um, interest in the environment, uh, little kid, um, and I, I wanted to do something with the environment as, as a career, and I think the best choice was working for the Forest Service, but, you know, after working, uh, you know, several years in the government, it, it, the bureaucracy kind of wears you down, especially when you kind of have an entrepreneurial mindset. Or you might have a mindset where, you know, you have some sort of maybe undefined leadership. You might not know what leadership is, but you're starting to maybe exhibit it and you can't do anything. Um, your, your hands are tied. So I thought that, okay, you know, we have to make a, a different uh, career choice and that maybe environmental stuff might be your avocation why you pick a new vocation. But luckily enough, um, I was able to transfer some of those skills and concentrate on picking, you know, uh, investments that might have had a kind of environmental bent to them. And, and I think that helped me be successful and differentiate myself at, at Bank of America. And, and so tell me about the role that you have now with your investment 
management company and and what are you going to do with those 13 billion so <laughs> sounds like a lot but in today's pandemic environment when the united states government is throwing trillions and billions out there billions don't sound like much that's pretty funny uh but um uh, what happened was, uh, when I was at OAMLP, um, I, I, Lalit and I kind of uh, uh, designed a forestry fund. It's really one of the, the first big social impact uh, forestry funds that were out there. And so that was a big part of our, our company. And that, that made it attractive for BFSG to, to purchase us. So we sold it in um, 2019, the whole company. Uh, and one of the stipulations upon the sale was, Steve, you're not going to leave. We need you to help run this company. So I agreed to pretty much stay for three years um, uh, at that point. But um, shortly after I got there, uh, the top the top board of directors said, no, Steve, uh, I, I think you need to run the firm because it's got a lot of problems and you, you might have some skills that you learned at Oxford that could really help us build the firm. So now um, I, I'm less on the investment side and unfortunately, I guess, on the administrative side, trying to restructure uh, the company uh, to make it more agile and um, able to compete in the 21st century. Okay. And you said, I think you said that, unfortunately, on the administra administration side. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I, I like picking the investments. I like working with the investments. Uh, I like working more with clients. Um, I, I'm not a, a great guy who, just just loves to get in on uh, you know tons of meetings and and, and 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 compliance and paperwork and managing people but um, I, I can see where it has to be done so what I want to do is is get the get the the the, the, the company uh, situated in, in good shape because I have a lot of equity I rolled my equity into this firm I have a lot at stake uh, to get it right. The problem with the firm is they're still doing stuff that is done in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and as far as technology, they're way behind. As far as, you know, management principles, they're way behind. And I can see it, 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 it needs to be stabilized and, and put back for growth. Mm. Okay, so how are you, can you talk us through a little bit how you're approaching that? Because uh, this sounds like big organizational change, transformation um, of systems, presumably people, processes. So how do you go about when you walk in, you've walked into that situation going, wow, this needs a lot of work. How, talk, talk us through your thinking process. So I, um, first of all, I, I thought about, okay, what, what framework, well, first of all, what do I want, what do I think that the firm should be? And it's just not me, you know. Um, so I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take senior management and we're going to come up with these different frameworks on how to get some sort of consensus where we want to go. And then we're going to get total employee involvement on it because, you know, they have a stake at it too. And we want to make 
the company a, 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 a great place where you come into the in the morning and you want to be there and you want to be alive and you want to go to work. So we started that. It was a little slow process. It was very difficult at the beginning because you, you have these competing forces that um, just don't like change. They like the status quo. And, and you know that you either have to shake it up or you have to close it down because it, the way it was going, um, the marketplace would do it. So then um, I thought about some of the frameworks I learned at OAMLP, and uh, I started developing these frameworks. And it, the framework centered around four things. One was um, con uh, connecting activities and intent. In other words, people were doing jobs that doing things that had nothing to do with their jobs. So the productivity was low. The second thing was um, connecting the human connection, um, which Lalit is very big on. Uh, and because people were not talking to each other, they were saying, uh, okay, why don't you, can you help me with this? And they'd email it. Yet their cubicle or office was right next door. Nobody was talking to each other. It was unbelievable. So I, I started saying, okay, we need to connect humans back together. The third was um, structuring problems. They were taking on all these projects and none of them were getting done. So I started a process called uh, um, structured problem solving. And the last one was I called the optimal challenge, which is some people were being overworked and some people were being underworked. So we were trying to balance the, the workload among uh, all the people. Okay, great. So I'm hearing very clearly their purpose, which is your, you know, your underlying factor. Why are we here? What are we doing? You know, the so what? Why are we doing this? And then what I'm really uh, hearing very, very strongly is that sense of belonging, creating connections so people understand. But that comes down from the first one, doesn't it? Why am I here? What is my purpose? My purpose here, not only the purpose of my work. Um, and then into sort of a real, real sort of structured approach. So which of those four areas was, has been the most difficult to bring about change? Uh, I, I would think uh, probably the two, I'll pick two, um, what would be problem structure, uh, you know, structured problem solving, uh, because people would, for example, take on a digital bi business strategy and then they wouldn't, they wouldn't complete it. They just, you know, we'd spend all these resources and all this money and nothing got done. So I thought that was important because we were just wasting a lot of money and the board was getting impatient. Uh, the second thing was the human connection. Uh, I, I thought that was probably my number one priority to get people talking to one another, people interacting with uh, one another. And we resisted the change because people, especially the young people, uh, they like to talk. Uh, they like to communicate by uh, um, message or on teams. Um, and we have all these technological things, but it's kind of ridiculous that if you're in a cubicle next door, why are you communicating by teams? Why don't you just look over the, 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 the wall and say, hey, I need your help, right? So, it, it, because if, if you don't start having this communication in what I call water cooler talk, informal conversations uh, within the company, you're not gonna generate ideas. Yeah, exactly. And so, 
and have you found are you able to sort of measure the the results the improvements from those activities that you've taken or is it early days yet well i i, I can you know, i can't quantitate you know i can't quantitatively measure it um you know i gotta do that but um i can i can see that there is great improvement um what i did was i took all the employees and I formed teams, and each employee had to pick a team that they, they needed to be on um, and uh, to get the conversations going. So we have uh, development, which is really sales and marketing. We have customer service. We have operations. Um, those kind of teams, um, senior management leads the team, uh, but the real senior management just stays in and acts as a coach and shuts up and they give some of their experience, but they don't, they don't uh, tell the team what to do. It's up to the team to come up with these ideas. And, and that, that I can see uh, some great improvement um, going on where people are excited about being the on the team and um, being participative. Yeah, and that's a real, I mean, that's your problem uh, solving um, approach, isn't it? And that's a real model of empowerment because um, we often talk to senior leaders about coaching um, rather than being directive. How is that? How have they adapted to that? Is that easy for your senior leaders or is that something they've had to learn as they've gone along? No, I think the senior leaders realized that there was a problem. And that if we want to grow to a $26 billion company or more than what we've got, we need to make a change. Uh, so they, they realize that the senior leaders are older. They're going to retire. And they, you know, they, they notice that there's not a deep bench of people to take their place. And they can't, they can't leave until, you know, people come up the ranks because um, they have no one to sell their equity to. So they, they realized the problem. So they've been very good about um, staying out of the way. What was interesting was the, the leaders of the team were very reluctant to make decisions or talk uh, when the coaches were actually in, in the meetings. So I've asked the coaches to only be in the meetings when absolutely necessary or when asked by the leaders. And that really improved the flow of information where people now aren't afraid to say things. Great. Okay. And how do you, what about your role in that? How are you in terms of your role as a coach? So I sit on one team, customer service uh, team. And um, uh, I, I think, you know, I'm, I've been staying out of the way and I, I, I went in there on the first, uh, the first meeting and I gave them a case study called the, uh, the Oberai Hotels. It's about customer service, about this hotel group in India that um, is just, you know, ultimate in customer service. I mean, they really go the extra mile. About after that, after I did the case study with the group, I stood back and I only go in when they, um, they asked me to. Um, and then I monitor all the teams through the senior le leaders uh, I have conversations with them just to make sure everything is going on track and that the four, you know, key points that I pointed out, um, human connection, problem solving, 
um, activity intent and optimal challenge. We're moving forward with that. <clears throat> and then I update the board uh, pretty much once a month on how we're doing. Okay. And how many people are in your organization? So uh, right now we have about, um, let's say, 90. Okay. Yeah. So good size to get, you know, get your arms around and, and move that forward. Do you think that helps the size helps with the sort of the agility of change? Uh, probably not. Uh, I think the, okay. the bigger the size you have, the bigger, you know, boulder you have to move uphill. So probably, probably not. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's getting manageable. So, um, so what I've taken away, my takeaways from that in terms of your role within this is about helping people to see the path for change and then creating the purpose, the sense of the belonging and this strong ethos that you've brought into the organisation of collaborating to improve. Does that sound like a, a, a good summary? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, because I, I had thought originally when we we sold our company to BFSB, which is really a subsidiary of a, a much bigger company, Focus Financial Partners, which is New York Stock Exchange. Um, I thought my role would be investment management and working with clients and starting to ease up a little. Um, but it, it just didn't turn out that way. Um, and... Um, uh, I realized that, you know, I had a significant um, risk here that I had merged my equity into this company. And if, if I didn't do something, um, I'd lose that equity or maybe not lose it, but, you know, be diminished. So, you know, I think the one thing in OAMLP, it, it, it teaches you several things. It teaches you to recognize when there's a problem. It teaches you to step up to the plate when you need to be, when maybe you don't want to, but you know you have to make that decision and either move forward. And then it 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 gives you the skills to do that. So re fully realizing that I had that, I said, okay, well the other uh, partners aren't going to do it. I better do it. So I did it. And then I'm always kind of the person that likes to take on a challenge. So, you know, I don't go in the, in, in, into it saying, oh my God, what did I get myself into and complain? I just say, okay, this is going to be interesting. We're going to, we're going to really just take this ball and run with it. And I can say uh, at the end that I had left this company, you know, kind of like from uh, what Ronald Reagan used to say, is the economy better four years now than, uh, than before? So I can leave and say, is this company better now than before I got here? And what did I contribute to make that happen? Yeah, that's your legacy, isn't it? And how long do you think, how, how long are you planning on staying in this current role? Well, um, when I uh, was at uh, OAMLP, um, I completed the certificate management studies, which was, um, you know, a very big undertaking. You spend another year uh, going to Oxford about five, six times a year, 
the, the great part of it was I got to work very closely with Lalit um, on designing a project um, which was a social impact uh, forestry fund of about $450 million. And what it did was it used uh, timberlands as a way of um, sequestering uh, carbon um, as a, um, as a um, uh, resource for climate change. So what it did was we, we purchased some land in Colombia, South America, and we um, um, provided jobs for local population. Uh, we planted trees uh, down there. Um, and then we sold carbon credits to utilities and polluters, um, which it worked out uh, extremely well. Uh, and that was part, of, I think, of why the company bought us. Um, but it was, it was really uh, one of the first, I think, major social impact funds that came out of Oxford. Now social impact is big at Oxford. So I thought, okay, well, mm -hmm. I would run that. Um, because that combined my forestry and, 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 and investment stuff. Uh, and then I thought, well, I could do that from Oxford. And I wanted to be closer to Oxford. I was going to buy a flat in Oxford and move there um, and um, hang out at the school because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still very involved in the school uh, in various ways, but uh, it didn't work out that way. So what am I going to do? I'll probably stay here five more years um, and then we'll see. Lots, lots of things. And what, there's, there is a real common thread, isn't there, through your career and the choices that you've made. Um, it strikes me and you're, you're bringing together your learning as you go along and you're experimenting and you're growing and then you're bringing all of that experience and that knowledge and those skills to bear um, each time that you sort of change, slightly change direction, but there's a real sort of common thread. Does it, has it felt like that as you've gone through your career? Yeah, um, I, I've always believed in lifelong learning. And what I do is I, I go to school, try to learn something and then apply it on the job. It's it's really interesting. I mean, you know, I, I'm i like a professional student almost. Um, I started in Oxford in 2007. Um, I got three postgraduate diplomas there, OAMLP, the certificate. Um, and it wasn't for the pieces of paper, it was for the learning. Because I'd go back and I'd apply to the job and I, I thought that was uh, really important. At, at one point I thought when I was sitting in Lalit's office and I saw this big book on his desk and I said, what's that? He says, well, it's, uh, it's a dissertation and he's reviewing it for some doctoral student, some DPhil student. And I said, can I look at it? And he said, yeah, sure. So I looked at it, it was like 400 pages. And I said, well, how'd the guy do? He says, oh, unfortunately I failed him. I said, oh, you're gonna let him do it again? He says, no, I don't think we allow that. And I thought, oh my God, this is 400 pages of like theoretical stuff. This isn't the world for me. That changed my mind real quick. I, I'm too practical. I take, go to school, I learn something, I apply to the job, and I move on. So that was just sitting in Lalit's office that one day looking at that book 
just probably changed my life for the better and saying, uh, don't do that. That's a God. That's a a great a great story. Um, perhaps not so much for the student. Um, tell me because you've talked a lot about Lalit, and I know you and he are very close. So, talk to me about your relationship and what you've learnt um, with him, um, and just how how much of a, a part of your life he is. So. Uh... You know, when I met Lalit at OAMLP, um, I, I have to say Lalit was his most kindest, gentlest, greatest human beings uh, that I've ever met. And, I, and I'm not trying to, you know, uh, you know, talk BS here. It, it, it's the truth. Um, I, I had just come back from a major surgery where maybe a, a nine months before um, I had bladder cancer and, um, you know, they had to make a couple special accommodations so I can go to OAMLP, but Lalit was always checking up on me to make sure I was okay. And I was, I was fine uh, at that point, but he, he, the kindness and the warmth just attracted to me to it. And then, um, uh, from that, I got to know him very, very closely because, uh, he became my supervisor with Sue Dobson for the Certificate Management Studies, which is a 20,000-word dissertation undertaking, which is a big job. And, you know, there were times he didn't like what I was doing or I wasn't going in the right direction, but he was always very nice about it, you know, and saying, well, you might want to consider doing this. You know, it wasn't like, hey, do this, you're wrong, you're an idiot. He would just, you know, guide me in the right direction uh, because I'd go to during that time, I'd spend additional five or six weeks at Oxford working on this thing and then the rest at home. And I so we got to know each other. We go out to lunch, we go to dinners, um, you know, um, and, and, and got to know each other uh, very, very well. And after that, I, I still, you know, kept uh, in touch with him. Um, and, um, you know, always kind of just admired the way he was always centered and calm. And I'm more of a type A personality, but that kind of influenced me in the sense that if I get aggravated or agitated, I think about all those shoes on his floor, and that would bring me to the space of, well, what would Lalit do? He's always calm, and he's always centered, so you need to get there yourself. Um, I have to say that Lalit is responsible in large part for the sex success I've had with my company after OAMLP and the certificate and certainly um, helped, you know, selling my company to BFSG and now running, you know, a lot of money and a lot of responsibility and responsible for a lot of livelihoods of uh, people. Uh, for example, when the pandemic hit, um, we're a financial services company. We're, we're considered a necessity company, which means that we have to keep open. And I was concerned about my employees at risk. I was concerned about the clients, uh, but we, we, I quickly acted and all the employees are working at home uh, and we're doing just fine. 
Uh, and then we have a skeleton crew at the office for, you know, people who need to come in um, and make deposits and things like that. So um, I, I attribute that all to a lovely. And to top it off was when the school uh, decided to build the new executive leadership education center, uh, Peter Turfano, the dean, asked me to get involved, and I did. And the first thing I said was, okay, I'll get involved on one condition, and that is we honor Lalit. Lalit needs to be properly honored, and I want to name a room after Lalit in the new building. And so um, that's exactly what we're going to do. Uh, hopefully the thing, the pandemic won't slow it down too much. And once the building is built, uh, we're going to have a, uh, um, a big um, to-do, have a elite there so we can properly honor him for everything that he has done for the school, everything he's done for all us OAMLP people, all his dissertation students, and the people who just love him at Oxford. That is, that's an amazing um, thing. We'll have to get him back from Thailand where he is at the moment, but that's, uh, that's really beautiful. The, the admiration and the respect um, that you have for him. And, and, I, and I agree with you that all of us do, um, but that comes across so, you know, so, so genuinely um, and with so much sort of friendship um, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. That sort of calm, centred approach. Um, I know when I did the programme, so this time last year, um, there was something about us all being a, a little bit surprised, I think, in the first evening uh, that we spent with Lolit. And we were sort of, you know, it felt very different. It felt, you know, let's take it down. You need to reflect. You need to think. Um, and when you're working a uh, hundred miles an hour. Um, you never, you don't do that. You sort of know somewhere in the back of your mind that you need to do it, but you don't do it. And that's what I think he brought in that very first, you know, hour of interaction with him. And we all knew that this was going to be a completely different three weeks than we'd probably thought it was going to be. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, I, I pick up on things. What was really interesting was Lalit is uh, very into the, the detail of things from the napkins on the table to the wine, to the little, little things that Andrew White wanted to cut out because there was too, it, was, it was too much money. And Lalit would put his foot down and say, no, we're not gonna cut the budget because of this. And uh, Lalit, when we went out to dinner, right, at all the restaurants, he was always there. He was always involved. He'd sit in the back of the room, he would observe, he'd be at the dinners, he was involved. In the other diploma programs that I had, a lot of the times those teachers were scarce. Lecture was over, bing, they're gone. Uh, so that was really unique. And I, I, I picked up on that really quick. Yeah. And that's the connections, the sense of belonging um, that you've been talking about that you've taken through in your work, isn't it? Uh, you know, I learned that. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can, I can feel it. It's really, it's a joy to feel, um, you know, to hear the admiration that you have uh, for him. And I know he thinks terribly highly of you as well. So that's just, it's a really nice coming together. 
um, of, of yeah. friends as you are now. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about we talked we touched a little bit on the pandemic. And one of the things that you were saying about your current role at the moment is getting those people, you know, get out of your cubicle, stop talking on teams, you know, put your head around and sort of say, right, how do we crack this together? So how how has the pandemic affected uh, that um, desire for you to, 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 to bring about that change in the organisation? And how, how do you think it's working at the well, moment? Well, the, team, the teams are still getting together. Of course, everything is on Zoom uh, for that. Uh, but they're still getting together. But what I have asked uh, the, the senior leaders to do and the partners to do is simply just get on the telephone and make calls. Instead of doing everything by Zoom or sending emails or text, just call up people and have a little conversation. So it's an imperfect you know, way of doing things because of the pandemic, but it's, it's, at least it's better. It's, it's trying to keep the connection uh, together because we don't really know in California when we're able to really go back to the office. Um, I, I have to suspect at this point uh, with flu season coming up, um, it's going to be probably in January or February. So um, I think, you know, under the circumstances, we're doing the best we can. But by just simply picking up the phone and hearing somebody's voice, that, that makes a big difference. Yeah, I think that's right. And we've taken, I know I do a lot, but in my, particularly in my team, we send letters and postcards a lot, just cards. And sometimes it's not anything to do with work. It's just, you know, we were on a call, you mentioned this, just thought I'd write and say something. And that that kind of connection has been really beneficial, I think, for people's well-being. But again, that sense of belonging, you know, and beyond the the as you say the teams meeting or you know this strategy meeting or 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 this customer focused meeting i think that really yeah, helps that, as well that really does so we've had um happy hour you know <laughs> virtual happy hour mm-hmm. that's kind of bizarre um and we've had storytelling where we pick a person and they have to tell um you know the whole group something that we don't know to try to get them to know better so we're trying different things. It's not easy, but, um, you know, it's, it's, what can you do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, we, you find that people come up with some brilliant ideas sometimes. So it has to be organic as well, come from the, and come from the team. Yeah. So uh, Chad came up with, he likes to drink, <laughs> came up with the virtual happy hour. And he was there leading the whole group with his uh, bottle of uh, scotch. Okay, straight in there with the scotch at the happy hour. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a very happy hour. Um, so one of the things I wanted us to talk a little bit about, because this is a key, a key um, element of the OAMLP, is about the unlearning and the relearning. Um, so I just wondered if you could sort of talk to us about perhaps a, a couple of times when you've done that through your career or maybe in this role, you know, what have you unlearned? What have you had to sort of force yourself to unlearn? And you started talking a little bit about it in your current role. Yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, for example, I completed an MBA in 1995 and, you know, that's pretty stale. That's a long time ago. 
And in those days, you learn more of uh, what you call scientific management. Uh, you know, the, you know, it's, it's more of a like, okay, you run a company like command and control. You know, you, you, here's, here's the goals, here's the objectives. We're supposed to go all in one direction, but you do as I say. And just carry out what I do and, or carry out what I say and you'll be okay. Um, you know, you had to unlearn that. And uh, to be more of a collaborative um, a kind of uh, management style, more of, a, you know, inclusive. Uh, so I had to unlearn the old management style and learn that. And now, uh, the last two years, I've had to unlearn um, old technology uh, uh, way of doing business and moving the company into a, a digital business strategy, which has been difficult uh, because the systems and the way of the, the company doing business are so antiquated that we have to make huge capital improvements um, that um, are costly. And of course, um, you know, people have their interest, which means they want money to go to the bottom line. And not spend on capital expenditures. So that has been kind of a, a transition where we just have to make those investments because if, if we don't, there won't be a company in five years. So I've had to unlearn old school technology and come up to speed on artificial intelligence, uh, business, um, um, uh, machine learning, business, uh, business uh, digital strategy. And, and in fact, to help me, I'm going back to Oxford. If we can go back um, live class in February um, with their uh, new, new AI program. Oh, yeah. In is this in the, with the new school with all the sort of funding that they've got yeah. around AI? Yeah. Um, yeah. That would be really interesting. Yeah. That hope to sort of get back um i feel i feel like you're missing I do. oxford like i said i um i, I wanted to buy a, a a flat there and um just kind of hang out um the uh, peter built this thing called the foundry uh which is a um you know kind of a startup um thing where the school helps uh, you know little companies start up or teams start up new venture angel investing and i was going to get involved in that um but it just never came to pass. Uh, I, I used to go to Oxford, you know, remember I started in 2007 and the last course I took was 2015. So I'd go pretty much four times a year and I have my little routine, which was kind of neat. Uh, I'd stay at the four, the, the four pillars um, Spires Hotel there on Abington um, because it was halfway between Lalit and Egrove and halfway between, um, you know, the high street. So that was a perfect location. So if I wanted to go see Lalit, I'd walk over to Egro. And if I want to go see Kathy or Sue or somebody else, I'd, I'd walk down into Oxford or over at the school and take my classes and all that. So I had my little routine. And um, yeah, I, I missed that. Um, I was going to go back for the reunion um, um, to, um, um, you know, see, not the reunion, but for Lalit's retirement party. But 
um, you know, and I can disclose that. I think a lot of the OAML people know me. I had a heart transplant in uh, 2014. Yeah, 2014. And sometimes I run a high fever for no reason. And I was running a high fever and the doctor said, you're not getting on the plane to Lalit's retirement party. And honestly, I I felt horrible. I felt I should have got on that plane um, because that was an important event. And I feel like I hurt his feelings because I wasn't there, but I just couldn't go. Well, there's one thing that we know about Lalit is his understanding and his deep empathy for people. So um, I'm sure you didn't hurt his feelings. All he would have been concerned about is you. Um, so t- just tell me, if you don't mind, you've talked about a heart transplant and also yeah. having had cancer. So just tell me how how that's impacted the way you approach you life. Know, when- uh, the first time I had cancer was 1994. I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. <clears throat> I thought I was dead. I was going to take all my money, go to Las Vegas and just have a good time. But the doctor told me, hey, Steve, you know, you got an 85% chance. I can't give you 100%, but I can give you 85. You're going to be fine. And, you know, after a year or two of chemotherapy, I was fine. Of course, it does damage. Uh, the chemotherapy caused um, bladder cancer. Um, roughly, I don't know, 15 years later or something. Um, so right before OAMLP, about seven, eight months before that, maybe nine months, I'm not sure. I had to have my bladder removed because if I didn't, I'd be just dead. Um, and every time I had the cancer, instead of like saying, oh, I'm going to give it up, I'm going to go smell the trees and the, the flowers bloom and just take it easy. It gave me the resolve to work even harder and to squeeze more of life in a short period of time because life is precious, but I, 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 I know what I want and uh, I want to, you know, be productive. I don't want to sit around and watch TV. <clears throat> so um, because of the chemotherapy agent in 1994, it, it basically destroyed the heart over time. And I had to have a heart transplant in 2014. Ironically, I didn't think I was going to die. I just knew a heart would come and I'd be fine. And I am. I'm on year six. But, you know, again, most people would say, oh, I'm going to watch reruns of Benny Hill or Bonanza and just take life easy. No, I, you know, for the three months I had to recuperate at home. Yeah, I took it easy. I still worked every day. But once I got the green light to go back to work, I geared it up. I'm working harder now than I ever have. And I love doing that. Uh, yeah, and I, can't, I mean, I can't imagine anything worse than watching reruns <laughs> of Benny Hill or Bonanza. Um, <laughs> so, get, yeah, get back to work. But that's... That's amazing determination, Stephen. That's an amazing, amazing story. And not to be, because, um, you know, it's probably, uh, I could imagine it's not always been easy, as you said, sort of the first time you were diagnosed, uh, but just sort of turning that into something really positive to drive you forward is is quite evident, comes across very, you know, when you talk and with your passion 
and your commitment. Yeah, I think that I really mean, shines you know, through. I, I mean, I, I'm not only passionate about my work, but so, you know, Cedar sinai Medical Center, where I've had all my cancer treatment and my um, um, heart transplant in Los Angeles. I mean, I'm ever grateful for them. And so I'm involved with them. I sit on the board there um, and I'm very involved and I'm passionate with them. And I, I think that my OAMLP skills and everything I've learned at Oxford and everywhere else, you know, I went to Harvard OPM, all that. Um, um, and and, and um, I guess my attitude has kind of transformed the board uh, as well, because, uh, you know, honestly, when I first joined the board, uh, they said, I, you're not going to like it because it's a bunch of retired people who have nothing else to do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's driven by uh, a lot of uh, uh, West Side uh, ladies, you know, and I'm not I'm not sexist, believe me on that. But it was stodgy and nothing was, you know, nothing, they were just talking about uh, where do you go to lunch today? And uh, did you see so-and-so? And so I got them moving um, on, on raising money for important projects. Uh, the project we're working on now is the new uh, innovation center, which is going to, I think, be one of the West Coast leaders on stem cell transplants. Um, before that, um, we, uh, you know, I was raising money for um, the Heart Institute to um, um, improve heart transplants. Cedar sinai is the largest heart transplant center in the world. And in fact, I wrote a case study for Oxford with uh, Professor K uh, Chris McKenna on uh, Cedar sinai Medical Center, which was, uh, which is used as a business case at the business school and uh, in his college, which is, I think, Balliol or one of those, yeah. Mm. I do. Where do you I find the do. time? You do. I'm going to ask you now about your big leadership idea. <clears throat> what might that be? Big leadership idea. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think my big leadership idea is what I'm doing here at the company. Um, all I can say is the politicians in the United States, that's where the leadership idea is needed sorely right now. That's, that's the only thing I can say. I don't have any big ideas for what I'm going to do. I think you've, you've shared quite a lot of your, your uh, big ideas with us as well. And what I'm loving in listening to you is just how you are, you've drawn, um, you know, on all of that experience, the things that you've learned, uh, the studies that you did really with purpose, not I'm going to go off and do this because it sounds like a good thing to do, but I'm going to go and do this. And then I'm going to turn that into actionable learning, which of course is, you know, um, is, you know, the ethos of the OMLP as well. Um, I'm going to the final question that I've got for you um, is what what would be the soundtrack to your leadership the, journey? The, the what? The soundtrack. So what music, <laughs> if you song, if there was a song for your oh, leadership well, journey, what would it be? I'm an old rocker. I'm from this, you know, I was, I was raised in the late 60s and the, the, the 70s. Um, and I guess, I guess I'm a big Fleetwood Mac fan. So probably the soundtrack would be go your own way um uh, you know 
the, the real lyrics behind that song is the breakup between Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. But how I interpret the song is I, my whole life, have gone my own way. Um, I, I, I am not the kind of guy who is going to be put in a mold and I'm going to be like everyone else. Um, a lot of folks who know me real well, they always say, you're different. You know, you live life to the fullest. Um, we've never quite met somebody like you, good or bad. Um, so I, I think even my parents, when I was younger, would have said, you know what, this kid is going to go, go, go his own way. So I think that would be my, my soundtrack. And uh, when I listen to it, or The Boys of Summer by Don Henley, because I'm a California boy, uh, those those two songs really get me going. Yeah, that's great. And I'm a we're a we're big, big Fleetwood Mac fans in our uh, our house. My daughters, we've got my uh, our daughters into awesome. listening to Fleetwood Mac. So um, I'm I'm with you on that. Brilliant, um, Stephen. It's been um, brilliant talking to you. I think some of my some of the things that I've sort of noted down while I've been talking to you, it, you know, how 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 might I describe you? The eternal student, um, but really taking that through into practice. Um, a bit of a bionic man, frankly, um, and your, you know, your entrepreneurial drive, but also that community focus that you have, you know, to do for others um, and the community around you and to give back. What I'm hearing a lot is that giving back. People have helped you, supported you. So it's really important for you to give back um, your resolve um, and your, your clear love for life. Um, has been uh, great to hear about. So thank you very much oh, for spending the time so with much. me today. I really enjoyed it and I really appreciate it. And um, I so forward to the um, Oxford Knowledge Club. I mean, with you and um, um, the others and Lalit, who, Joseph, who put this idea together was just totally awesome. And when I got the invite. It was like that was I'm dropping everything I do to make sure I'm like the first 12 or whatever we were going to limit this to, because I, I just had to be part of it. And, you know, with Lalit leaving the school under, you know, because they have a, a age retirement thing. Otherwise, he'd still be there um, it is is just an extension. And it is so great. And I'm so happy to be part of it. Great. Well, thank you. And we are loving it. We've just opened up our membership to to a few more people as well, which is great because the pilot's been so good. Um, but I shall be looking forward. Perhaps you'll maybe you'll write an essay yeah, I'm going for us to, or lead a conference uh, I just, for I us. I just got the email and I'm going to write, uh, spend some time doing something there. Brilliant. Stephen, thank you ever thank so much. Thank Have you a again. wonderful weekend. Bye bye. OK, take care.